Good morning. Morning. Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the opportunity to study and to learn of you. And we ask that your spirit will lighten our minds, transform our hearts, and enable us to reach others for your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number eight, Worship the Creator, in the lesson quarterly, Preparation for the End Time. And this week, I got an email from one of our online listeners, uh, Kent Johnson, who uh, wrote the following. It's amazing how much I come across the non-legal way of looking at salvation now that I've learned to see God's law with new lenses. Thank you again for providing this understanding. Such a neat quote below. And this is a quote that he found from the uh, book Education, starting on page 113. Whoso is wise and will observe these things even shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. God's healing power runs through all nature. If a tree is cut, if a human being is wounded or breaks a bone, nature begins at once to repair the injury. Even before the need exists, the healing agencies are in readiness. And as soon as a part, of, uh, a part is wounded, every energy is bent to the work of restoration. So it is in the spiritual realm. Before sin created the need, God had provided the remedy. Every soul that yields to temptation is wounded, bruised by the adversary. But whenever there is sin, there is a Savior. It is Christ's work to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, to set at liberty them that are bruised. In this work, we are to cooperate. If a man is overtaken in a fault, restore such a one, Galatians 6.1. The word here translated restore means to put in joint as a dislocated bone. How suggestive the figure he who falls into error or sin is thrown out of relation with everything about him. He may realize his error and be filled with remorse, but he cannot recover himself. He is in confusion and perplexity, worsted and helpless. He is to be reclaimed, healed, reestablished. Ye are spiritual, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. Only the love that flows from the heart of Christ can heal. Only he whom that in that love flows even as sap in the tree or the blood in the body can restore a wounded soul. Are you hearing the, the principles here of love, the other-centeredness, the, the healing, the, the plan of salvation? One short paragraph left. Love's agencies have wonderful power that are divine. The soft answer that turns away wrath. Would we learn the lesson with what, with what power for healing would our lives be gifted? how life would be transformed and the earth become the very likeness and the foretaste of heaven. So did you hear in this message anything legal going on here? Atonement. Yeah, this is the true atonement, the atonement, the restoration, the healing, the reconciliation, putting back in harmony with God's design. Very powerful quote. So let's go to the lesson now. Sabbath's lesson, first paragraph reads, As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we believe in the biblical concept of present truth. It's basically the idea that God unfolds truth to humanity at a time that is needed with more and more light being given by the Lord over the ages. Are Seventh-day Adventists the only Christians who um, believe in this concept of present truth, that truth unfolds over time? I've presented this idea all over to lots of groups, and I've never had any resistance. It's very well accepted to, to Christianity at large that God's infinite, we're finite, we're to move forward and advance in truth. So I don't think that idea is restricted to this church, is it? Oh, God. Well, I haven't ever really rep run against any opposition to that concept when you present that concept. If Christians of any group believe that truth unfolds over time, if we do believe that, how would that manifest? 
Would it, would it manifest by doggedly defending ideas that are centuries old? Or would we be open to leaving behind old ideas when better ideas present? Well, let's give an example of truth for a time that's no longer true today. And in fact, if we hold to this truth, that it, it obstructs the truth for this time. Let's give an example. Historically, the Roman church had come to the point in history where they were holding people hostage to authority of the church institution. Salvation was dependent not on trust relationship with Jesus but also alone, but also a combination of works done within the church, penance, baptism, mass, indulgences, and further salvation could be obtained through purging uh, of the wickedness after death in a place called purgatory. A living person could help a loved one out of purgatory by purchasing a pass from the church to accomplish this. Martin Luther wanted to remove the power of the church to hold people hostage with a false teaching about purgatory. So in his theology, he developed, notice I'm saying he developed because he did, the idea of penal substitution. The idea that all sins are placed on Christ and punished in Christ. Thus, when a person accepts Christ, there is nothing left to be punished or purged as was already done so in Christ. The sinner needs only the legal application of Christ to their heavenly record. Well, this was a powerful idea which helped millions break free from the falsehood of purgatory and the power of the institutional church to send souls to heaven or hell, which is really taught in that system. The church holds the keys. The truth that Luther presented was that salvation is found in Jesus and not the church institution. But is his theory of how it mechanically works, the penal view of salvation, truth for today? It is not truth for today. And in fact, if we hold to that idea, we obstruct the truth for today. And why is it not truth for today? Because the penal view is based on imperial law, which is a lie. Yes, Wendell. Present truth, though, has the connotation almost of religious evolution. If we truly believe that Enoch walked with God, Moses was God's friend, Abraham was God's friend, they truly probably had ideas that we are only discovering or rediscovering now. So it's not so much an evolutionary, um, oh, this is new truth, as it is a rediscovery of what God truly started out with in the beginning. It may be in verbiage that we cannot understand unless we use current verbiage. But the truth was always there and was probably known better by some in times past than we currently have, and we've lost it and only coming back to where maybe they were at some point in times past. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's either or. I think what you said is true, and I think what this says is true. I think they're both true. I think the eternal truth is always true and it never changes, and that truth is always there. However, there is truth that is specific for a place and a time and a need of a circumstance that isn't necessarily needed at other places and times in history, even though the eternal truth about God and his methods never change. The application of what's needed in a particular circumstance, for instance, there was a truth that Abraham was going to have a child at a certain age. That was a promise made to him. That truth was true for Abraham, but that's not true for me. But it's part of the larger truth that you're saying, that the truth about God and his plan of salvation. And so I think the unfolding truth for 
our purpose, our mission, what we're trying to do, what our message is for the people of this time. There was a truth, for instance, what was it, 3,500 years ago, that we must leave Egypt. (laughs) The truth is we're being freed to leave Egypt. That's not our truth today. Our truth is we're preparing to leave the world of sin for the second coming of Christ. There was a truth 2,000 years ago that the advent, the, the Messiah, has come to earth. There's a truth today that the Messiah is coming back, but not in the same purpose or mission he came for then. So the grand truths, I think you're exactly right, God's character, God's purpose. But then the, the working out of the plan is unfolding over time. Is that, is that, is that reasonable? So why, why is penal substitution not the truth for today? And in fact, if we continue to promote it, we obstruct the truth for today? You, you have to remember Martin Luther coming from his position, even though he was presenting the truth that salvation is in Christ only and not in the church institution, was coming from some, such deeply embedded misconceptions, he couldn't free himself from all of them. It wasn't possible. As the lesson says in the second paragraph, it says the message for this time is the three angels' messages, which is the message about worshiping the Creator, which requires that we actually come back to design law, Him who built the heavens and the earth, and not this imperialism that leads us to kind of a dictator view of God. So I'm going to read to you something that I came across this week. I thought it was quite profound and appropriate for the lesson. I was just reading a book called Prophets and Kings, page 625, and listen to this. I think it really kind of just hones right in on it. There is no such thing as weakening or strengthening the law of Jehovah. As it has been, so it is. It always has been and always will be. Holy, just, and good, complete in itself. It cannot be repealed or changed. Pause right there. What kinds of laws can be repealed and changed? The the imposed laws, the, the legislated laws, the laws that man makes. What kind of laws cannot be uh, uh, repealed and changed? Design laws. So when she describes functionally this type of law, it can't be repealed, it can't be changed, because it's designed, it's how reality works. It's very profound. To honor or dishonor it is but the speech of men. In other words, you can walk to the top of this building and say, I refuse to believe in gravity, I am not going to honor gravity, and jump off the building. Gravity doesn't care. It doesn't change. Nothing's, nothing's a change in reality. And that's the same thing we talk about God's law, this, that, or the other way. It just is. Keep on with the next paragraph. Between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. What's the last issue going to be? Between the, between the uh, laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah. And again, what kind of laws do men enact? Rules. What about God creates reality. And so this last controversy is really going to be over functional. How does God's law and government function like a human government? System of rules requiring legal inactions, investigation of records. God becomes a magistrate that inflicts punishment. He's the one we need protection from. This whole construct? Or is it, in fact, we have a condition that needs healing and he's working to heal us? Keep on with the quote. Upon this battle, we are now entering. A battle not... (laughs) Hold on to your horses here, people. A battle not between rival churches contending for supremacy. 
That's not the battle. It's not between rival churches contending for percentage, but between the religion of the Bible and the religions of fable and tradition. So if we're not in a battle between rival churches, now maybe it's my bias, maybe it's my distorted thinking, so I'm going to ask the group, if you were raised in the SDA church, has it ever come across to you in any way that the SDA church is pitted against other denominational churches? <laughs> that we're warring against certain institutional churches? Has it ever come across that way? Is it just me? But we're not. According to this author, one of the founders of the SDA church, she says in Prophets and Kings that the final battle that we're now entering is not a battle between rival churches. It's a battle over the law. Which law construct do you adhere to? And so I want to ask you, why is it that we find so much of the time that there's this idea embedded within the Adventist church that we are pitted against these other churches? There's the remnant church, and then there's the prostitute and all little daughters. You ever heard that? There's the Roman church and all little daughters. And we're this church. And, and I've always felt it pitted against the other churches. This author says that's not what it's supposed to be. Why does it seem to be that way? I'm going to suggest because the SDA church, like every church on earth, has been infected with the idea that God's law functions like human law. And thus when they look at the other churches, they don't actually see the difference in God's law functionally. They just see a difference in which rules that you must apply. And so they, they end up doctrinally arguing against the other churches to prove we have a more pure list of the proper rules to obey of the God who gave the rules and the God who's going to police the rules and the God who's going to examine your record for the way you've lived your life and the deeds you've done and the God who's going to punish you if you don't keep the rules. We've got the better list of rules than you've got. Am I misreading it? What is a fable? A fable. What is a fable? I looked it up in the dictionary. It is a story not founded in fact. That's what a fable is. A story not founded in fact. She said that the upon this battle we are now ending, a battle between not between rival churches contending for supremacy, but a battle between the religion of the Bible and the religions of fable and tradition. Fable. A, a story not founded in fact. The idea that God's law functions like human law is not founded in fact. That's a fable. Sunday's lesson, the title is entitled The Universality of the Gospel. What is the gospel? Good news. What is the good news? Okay, let me put this question to you. See if anybody's uncomfortable with this question. Why is the gospel uh, not the idea Excuse me, let me rephrase that. Why is the universal gospel, because that's the title of the lesson, universality of the gospel, why is the universal gospel not the idea that Jesus died for our sins? Is the gospel only for human beings? Or is it for the entire universe? Uh, Jesus speaking, but I, when I am lifted up, will draw all into myself. Or Colossians for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Was something about Christ's death 
and what he accomplished at the cross necessary for angels in heaven? Was, it, was there something about it necessary for them? Yes, it was. Was was what was necessary for them that Jesus died to pay for their sins? No. That's not what was necessary. But something was necessary for them. But it wasn't that. So I'm not suggesting, let's be very clear, people seem to mishear me sometimes, I'm not suggesting that salvation was possible without the death of Christ. Not at all. What I'm suggesting is that it wasn't necessary for Jesus to die for the sins of angels in heaven. That wasn't necessary, but his death was necessary for some other reason for them. All things haven't reconciled to Christ at the cross. So maybe a correct way of saying it would be this way. Jesus dying for our sins, for our sinful condition, for the sin problem, is an expression or an outworking or a manifestation or a revelation or a result of or an evidence of the gospel. Did you hear that? It reveals the gospel. It's a a working out of the gospel. By the way, did Jesus' death on the cross pay for the sins of Satan? (laughs) For those who like the payment view. If the gospel's universal and uh, for all beings, but the death of Christ on the cross was not to save Satan, then the death of the Christ on the cross for our sin problem is not the universal gospel. That's not it. But an acting out or result or an expression of the universal gospel. Another way to ask the question, was there no gospel before sin? Was there no good news before sin? Or does the Revelation, Angel 3, Angel's message, say there is an eternal gospel, an eternal good news? It was eternally true in eternity past, even before sin. It's still the gospel. It's still the good news. It's another way to say it. The gospel is the revelation of the character of God. The gospel is the revelation of the character of God. The good news. And why is that so good news to realize who is? Why is that like good news? Because we haven't really known. We've actually believed a different version. And when you come to actually see God for who he is, it's a, it, he, really? I mean, he's like that? Uh, that's not what I was taught. That's really good news. That's what it is. So consider this quote uh, from a commentator uh, about Satan's opportunity for salvation. And what are the implications here? It's uh, out of a book called Great Controversy 495. It says, God in his great mercy bore long with Lucifer. He was not immediately degraded from his exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, nor even when he began to present his false claims before the loyal angels. What are false claims? Would this be bearing false witness? Would this be a breaking of the commandments? And we call that sin. Okay, so he's sinning in heaven, just pointing that out. Now keep on with the quote. Long was he retained in heaven. Again and again he was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission. Pause. Is he offered pardon on the condition of repentance because he has not sinned or because he has sinned? Functionally, that's why he's that's what it means. He's being offered on the condition of repentance. He's sinned. But is there any payment here? Is there any blood sacrifice? Is there any propitiation? Is there any perfect sinless offering being offered for him? If you believe this commentator to be true, 
This really just is another death blow to the whole penal substitutionary theology. Keep going. And I'm going to ask if you hear the gospel in here, though. Not the gospel, so-called Jesus died for our sins, but the gospel that is revealed when Jesus died for our sins. Such efforts as only infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. The spirit of discontent had never before been known in heaven. Lucifer himself did not first see whether he was drifting. He did not understand the real nature of his feelings, but as his dissatisfaction was proved to be without cause. Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong, that the divine claims were just, and that he ought to acknowledge them as such before all heaven. Had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. He had not at this time fully cast off his allegiance to God, though he had forsaken his position as covering cherub, if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied to fulfill the place appointed to him by God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office. But pride forbade him to submit. That's profound stuff if we believe it's true. Yes, Russell. Uh, along the language, he was led by feelings, and yet his conscience convicted him that he was an error. Yep. And he continued to allow himself to be blinded by pride and led by emotion and feeling and be governed that way and the boy out now. Do you know this type of description really, really causes huge stumbling to the penal group? They can't figure it out. If you have a design law view, it makes perfect sense, but do you hear the gospel? Do you hear the good news in here? Did anybody hear the gospel? Can anybody tell me the gospel they heard? God is love. God is love. And the mercy forgiveness. That this is the good news. His kindness leads us to repentance. Does did you hear in this passage any idea that says something like this? Every sin must meet its punishment. We must punish sin. Did you hear that in here? No. If you read in another book, Desire of Ages, the same author says every sin must meet its punishment. Urge Satan. That's Satan's view. Okay? But that's the penal view. Sin requires punishment. That's the just thing. Justice requires we must punish sin. This good news is no. The gospel doesn't require that. What's the gospel require? Healing, restoration, putting a person into righteousness. This is what the gospel requires because this is who God is and life is built to operate in harmony with God's nature. Very profound, the death of Christ was not necessary for his reinstatement. And the reason... This was in God's presence. This was in God's presence. Sin was happening there. Sin has never been a legal issue. Never. Never been an issue that requires punishment. That's Satan's lie. It's a deviation from design which damages those and needs curing, needs healing. So how was it that Satan could be restored without the death of Christ? Could have been if he'd have chosen it, but he didn't. But human beings cannot be restored. I'm going to make that very clear. I am not suggesting again that the human race could be saved without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Impossible. So don't, don't, don't somebody translate what I've said here from, uh, from what happened in heaven with Lucifer, and I'm saying that the death of Christ wasn't necessary. Not so. The question is, why was the death of Christ necessary for us, but it wasn't necessary for him? Isn't that a, isn't that a reasonable question to ask? And, and, and you have to understand reality to, understand the, to answer the question. Penal groups can't answer this. Throw it at them. They can't answer it. Because Satan already understood God's character. This is big piece of it. A big, this is one big piece. There's two big pieces, and that's, the, that's one of the pieces. That's exactly right. I'll read out of Desire of Ages, 761, and the previous quotation 
actually gave insight into the second piece. This is the piece that she mentioned, Isaiah 761. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness. In other words, knowing the gospel, the goodness of God. Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. Why? There was no more about God's character that he didn't comprehend or understand to reveal to him. But man was, in, was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in, pause, a legal payment to take his punishment. That's not what it says. For him there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. That's the deal. So big piece number one for Lucifer. So the question, um, what was necessary for saving human beings? Why did Christ have to die? Two reasons why for human beings. It ultimately was to reveal truth and to cure the condition. To restore. To restore the human species back to harmony with God in, in, in mind and heart and character. Why could Lucifer have returned without that? Without that death of another being doing that for him? If you remember the first quote, he had not yet fully cast off, even though he'd been in rebellion, even though he'd been lying. He had not yet fully cast off. And Lucifer was not born with a corrupted character or a corrupted nature. He was created with the sinless, perfect internal workings. We were never that in that position. Adam was in that position, not us. We were born with a condition and so our condition at birth, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5, we are incapable of in our own white, number one, comprehending and seeing the truth. We're incapable by ourselves of choosing and applying the truth. And we're incapable of overcoming our own fallen nature. We are incapable of that. We are different beings in, in construction, if you will. Not in Adam. Adam was constructed perfectly and sinless. He had the power to make those healthy choices. But Lucifer was not born with this corrupted condition. He was in the process of being corrupted by his contemplations and thoughts and actions, but he had not yet fully gone beyond the point that he could have re-embraced the truth and purged the corruption. We never have that option. Does that make sense to everyone? Very, very profound stuff. And it only makes sense under a design law construct. Yes? Well, what about Adam compared him with Satan? Yes. He knew God firsthand. Yes. So why wasn't he offered? Because he was an infant in knowing God firsthand. Man was in a different position than Lucifer. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. He did not know it on the level. There was hope and a revelation of further depths of God's true character and love. So man's mind was, was, was while he did know God, he... We don't have an exact time frame as how long Adam and Eve walked on the earth prior to their sin. But by all accounts and any view that I've ever read, it was fairly short. They didn't live very long on earth before they were deceived. And so they didn't have time to ultimately assimilate for themselves a knowledge on such a deep level that they were settled into the truth. Lies came in and lies believed break the circle of trust. And then once they did that, their nature was changed and corrupted and fear and selfishness took over.
So the gospel, the eternal gospel, the gospel that's always been true, eternity past, eternity future, is the truth about God, his character and methods of love. And the imposed law view is not truth. Penal substitution today, guys, obstructs the final message. It obstructs the three angels' message. It's why we're being delayed, why the second coming hasn't come, because we're putting out this false gospel that keeps people living in fear of God, keeps people teaching doctrines that are designed to hide and protect them from God, rather than opening their hearts to be restored to, rec- to harmony with God. The, uh, the lesson asks us to compare the, uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28:19 with um, the th- first angel's message, saying, suggesting that, that the uh, revelation, the first angel's message, is the Great Commission. So this is um, Matthew 28:19 and 20. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is Revelation 14:7. And I want you to tell me how they're the same. How are these both the gospel commission? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. How is the message that I just read in the first angel the same as, Go ye therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you? Christ did reveal who the Father was. And so, yes, indeed, that was the gospel. But... That was not expressed the same way. Other thoughts? I'm going to suggest to you, it goes back again to what law view you're looking through. If you're seeing the three angels' message through the imposed law view, okay, through the fables of imperialism, then the three angels' message goes something like this. The, the first of the three goes something like this. In fact, I'm going to suggest it's not a good news message, it's a bad news message. Because God is the ruling authority and he's examining records. It's time for his judgment to sit. And if you don't have the legal payment of Jesus to your account for your past sins and observe religion in the right ways that God has instructed us to watch at the right time, then Jesus, when he ceases his intercession in heaven, you will have no longer anybody paying your sins and God will be forced to punish you for all unrepentant sins. That's the first angel's message in the imperial view. And that's terrible news. I'm only safe because i got somebody to protect me from God. Did, did, now, I might have stated it in some words that they don't typically use, but functionally, have I misstated the function of how it's described? No, if we don't get the sins out of the book, and if we don't behave in the right way, when our intercessor steps out, God will see the sins left unrepented of, and he will punish us for them. Is that not how it's taught? And I'm going to tell you, it's a fraud and it's a lie. It's a corruption. That explains the fear of when we don't have an intercessor. Right. When we understand design law, then we're not afraid to not have an intercessor because the intercessor is working not on God, but he's working in us to heal and restore us to unity with God, and he steps out of the way once he's done his work. There's no more healing and restoration due because we're at one. We're set right. And so we can meet the Father face to face, for we shall be like him. So his work of interceding in us is over. That's why he steps out. It's so beautiful, and it's, no, it's not fear-inducing. It's like, oh, yes, I'm looking for the day he doesn't have to intercede anymore. So the three angels from the design view is a completely different. We come back to design law. Give glory to him. Reveal his character in your life. For the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God and stop judging him to be this harsh dictator and see him as their loving creator who will restore them. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Worship the designer and come back to understand his laws or design parameters. That, that's it. 
So Matthew, the gospel commission from the remedy. So go and spread the remedy to the entire world. Teach the people of every nation, immersing their hearts and minds into the character and methods of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to live in harmony with the law of love, the design protocols upon which life is built, exactly as I have instructed you. And you can be sure that I am always with you, all the way, right through to the very end of time. Third paragraph in Sunday's lesson states, The universality of sin explains the universality of our mission and calling. Every nation, tribe, tongue, people have done wrong, have violated God's law, and have been confined under sin. Adam's fall in Eden has impacted every human being. No nation or tribe or people has been immune. We all face the immediate consequence of sin, and without a remedy, we all would face the ultimate consequence, eternal death. Did you notice the emphasis here? All have done wrong. I want, I want you to think with me. What does that imply? Sin is an act. Bad behaviors. That we have legal problems. We're in trouble for our behavior. So, does, so let me ask you to think about the meaning, though. Because the Bible says all have you know, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Does, does all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God mean that we're short of the glory of God because we've sinned? Or have they sinned because they are short of the glory of God. Do you hear the difference there? Is it the sins, the bad deeds, that cause us to be short of the glory of God, or is it the character, the condition of heart, that causes the sins? Condition of sin. David wrote in Psalms 51.5, I quoted it a minute ago, I have been evil from the day I was born. From the time I was conceived, I have been sinful. Was David, at birth, short of the glory of God? Yes. Had baby David done any sin to cause him to be short of the glory of God? This is not consistent. What I'm teaching you here is not consistent with the penal view. The penal view, it's the bad deeds that make you short. Are humans and nations short of the glory of God because of the wrongs we've done or the wrongs we've done are because we're already short? That's the thing. The sins, the bad deeds are the symptoms of a condition And this condition is a terminal condition and results in death. But before we die of this condition, we will suffer with symptoms if we're not partaking of the remedy of Jesus Christ. And those symptoms are called sins. The last paragraph has it right. Jesus is our remedy to the sin problem. Monday's lesson asks us to review the account of the thief on the cross who put his trust in Jesus and asks, the lesson asks, how does this story reveal the great hope of the everlasting gospel to all sinners? Let me ask you, if you put, your, put your mindset around the mind of the thief of the cross. What was the gospel preached or seen or revealed to the thief that brought him to put his trust in Christ? Did someone say to the thief at the foot of the cross, was John or Peter or one of the apostles at the foot saying, if you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, all your sins will be placed upon him, and right now he will be punished by God for your sins, and God will accept his payment, and then God won't torture you in hell for all eternity because he loves you. Did someone present that to him at the, at the cross? No, that was not the gospel he heard or saw. What did he see? He saw crowds mocking Jesus, brutalizing him, crucifying. He saw religious leaders reject him and taunt him. And he saw Jesus love his enemies, forgive his abusers, be kind, think about others. And was any of that the gospel? The good news. Yes. 
How could Jesus, how would the penal substitution explain that Jesus could give the thief assurance of salvation when the investigative judgment hadn't started? Mm, you know, you, you wanted me to tell you how they would answer that question? Yeah. Uh, they would answer that question because he's God and he has foreknowledge and he knows what the judgment will have in the end anyway. So it would have been something about foreknowledge, uh, giving him the ability to know that answer. Well, he then... We could skip the investigative judgment because he would have that foreknowledge for everybody. Yeah, he does. And, and the investigative judgment is not typically because God needs it. It's so that God can show that he's fair when he kills some and saves others. And so he's opening the records for the angels and other intelligences to know why you got in and somebody else didn't. They get to look at your records. But the amount of records will also determine, uh, of the unrepentant sin, will determine how much you get punished before he kills you. This, this is the model, but it's not really taught in the investigative judgment that God doesn't know it or foreknow it. It's taught that, that those records are there for all the other intelligences who might not trust God without the records. I don't buy it. Of course, you shouldn't buy it. It's a ridiculous theory, and it doesn't hold up, and it's not true. Okay? Those are not what, that's not what's actually happening in the investigative judgment. Um, we actually revealed that and went through that, what's actually happening in our talk a couple of weeks ago. And we'll have those, those lectures available for streaming and those DVDs out very, very soon. The first one's rendered, and, and now Dean's working on the second one. So hopefully in the next week or two, we'll have those out for everybody, at least online to stream. And then, of course, the production of the DVDs will follow. So Jesus didn't turn to him and say, have you repented of every sin you've ever committed? Or... Did you ask for the payment of my blood to be applied to your account in heaven so the Father can legally pardon you? Jesus didn't look at him and say that, did he? No. This is uh, such a corruption when we look at that. Jesus didn't in any way bring up his past mistakes, did he? It wasn't relevant. It wasn't a concern. Last two paragraphs. No, instead Jesus turned to the criminal, the thief, with a faulty character who had nothing to offer in a way of righteousness um, and who earlier had been cursing him, seeing him as a new man, Jesus said, essentially, I am telling you right now, I am giving you uh, the assurance right now that your sins, your crimes, your faults are forgiven, and thus you will be with me in paradise. Here is the everlasting gospel, the foundation of the first angel's message. Without this truth, nothing else we teach about the law, the Sabbath, the state of the dead matters. What good are all these teachings without the everlasting gospel all from the, uh, uh, at the heart of them? Is the gospel... The everlasting gospel, what they said here, the good news that Jesus died so you can be forgiven. That's what they're saying the everlasting gospel is, if you read that. What is it that leads us to repentance, according to Scripture? The goodness, the kindness, yes. Uh, Romans 2.4. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? It's his kind, loving, gracious, merciful character that we finally see and our hearts are broken and we let him in. Tuesday's lesson. I'm going to get to some controversial things now. <laughs> or maybe it's Wednesday's lesson. It might be Wednesday's lesson. I don't know. The lesson is about, uh, is about the first angel's message, about fearing God and giving him glory. Uh, let's read the third paragraph. Uh, it says, in the verses above, the idea of fearing God is linked to obeying him. And when we obey God... When we do what is right, we bring glory to him. Although it is often said that to fear God is to be in awe of God and to reverence him, it should go deeper than that. We are fallen. We are sinners. We are beings who deserve death. 
Who hasn't at moments faced the startling realization of the evil of their deeds and what they would deserve at the hands of a just and righteous God for those deeds? This is the fear of God. Is that what the first angel's message is? Fear God and give glory to Him because you're about to face Him and He and He's a just and righteous God and you're a horrible worm who's done terrible deeds and if you don't have somebody calm Him down and get Him some anger management classes, He's going to really hurt you. I had that paragraph marked out. Yeah. I'll repent because He's good. Yeah. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, yes, go ahead. So to rephrase that, what they should be realizing is that those awful deeds are violations of design law and that those deeds will destroy them unless they can accept the healing from God. Yes, in fact, those deeds are a violation of the, because of the condition of the heart. You know, you say if you commit murder, you commit sin. Jesus said, I say if you hate in your heart, you commit adultery, you commit sin. The bad behavior, I say if you lust in your heart. The bad deeds are always a manifestation of the heart that's out of harmony with God's design. And, those, and, and results in the symptoms and ultimately to death. So yes, that's exactly right. Yes? I have problems with the word deserve. Because if we truly are God's children, what do we deserve? If your child was sick and had done something to harm themselves... What do they deserve? They deserve healing and restoration. Well, okay, so, so thanks for bringing this up. It depends on where, you're de- uh, where and to whom you're applying the, the action word uh, deserve or, or wh- where you apply. For instance, if a child drinks poison, what do they deserve from the poison? Okay, but if a child drinks poison and the parent sees them and has a remedy, what do they deserve from their parent? Healing and restoration. Okay, and so it really depends on where you apply the word deserve, doesn't it? So what do we deserve from sin? Death. We deserve from sin death. So the Bible teaches, sin when full grown brings forth death. The one who sows to the carnal nature from that nature will reap destruction. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death from sin. But this is only understood in design law. When you have imperial law, then the, 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 the cause of death is not from the sin. It's not from the poison. So the cause of death, you've given your kid a rule, don't drink the poison. But they've, they've done it. Well, justice requires a just parent now to, to punish the kid for breaking the rule, so I'm going to have to kill you. And so you don't deserve grace and mercy from the Father. What you deserve from your parent is for them to let you die or to kill you. That's what you deserve in the imperial model. And that's where you're going with this. No, we don't deserve that from God. We don't deserve death from God. We deserve death from sin. Are you agreeing with my parsing of this? It's an important parsing or separation. But they do mean, and you were right to take umbrage with it, because they do mean that we don't deserve from God. And the only reason we deserve it now is because Jesus came and Jesus offers his blood to the Father and that influences the Father to be kind and gracious and through Jesus' life and death, now we deserve it. If that truly is what God is like, then this is not good news. No, that's, that's the whole point. This is why the second coming has been delayed. Are we in a delay? 
we're delayed because this other version has taken root in every denominational church, including our own church, and thus we are not presenting the three angels' message as it is to be presented. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Come back to worship our creator God. Come back to trust him and be healed and reconciled and restored. Instead, we have this legal imperialism being taught, and it teaches people to distrust God, and they live in fear of the day where the intercessor stands up and doesn't intercede for us anymore. In fact, I want to get to that in the lesson. So who hasn't had moments faced with the startling realization of the evil deeds and what they would deserve at the hands of a just and righteous God? This is the fear of God. Notice, this is is the lie. This is a false gospel. This is a distortion of Satan. This is what infects Christianity. This is what prevents the gospel from healing people because it teaches them to be terrified of God rather than to trust him and open the heart to him. So more people end up being afraid of God who's trying to save them than the sin in their life which is killing and destroying them. And that's true. Bible says, you can do, here's, a, here's something you can do cognitive dissonance with people who take this view. Does the Bible say that perfect love casts out all fear? Does that mean it casts out awe and reverence? That when we come to love God, we have no more awe and reverence for him. What, what, what would it mean? What kind of fear is being cast out? So as we come to God and he heals our hearts and he has his perfect love restored in, do we actually have this kind of fear they're teaching? No, it's antithetical. That fear is part of Satan's corruption of the gospel. Here's a quote from one of the founders of the SDA church. It's in a book called Five Testimonies 738. See what you think. Notice, from the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God that he might secure them to himself. Hence he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself, as arbitrary, that's somebody who imposes rules, that's what the arbitrary is, severe, unforgiving. Now, why would he do this? Listen to these reasons. That he might be feared. This is Satan's goal, that you might fear God that he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. Oh, with this view of God as an imperial dictator who will punish you in hell and, and, punish, and, and, and he needs an appeasement, he has to have somebody there to plead with the blood of a human sacrifice not to hurt us. That view led to the Dark Ages. That view led to the, the ultimately the Renaissance. That view led to thinking people to say, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with God. Let's, let's, let's create a worldview where there is no such thing as God. It's exactly Satan's goal that they would throw off and would put God out of their knowledge. Then he, continuing on with what Satan would do, then he would obliterate the divine image in man and impress his own likeness upon the soul. He would imbue men with his own spirit and make them captives according to his will. Now, what's the spirit of Satan look like? Selfishness, greed, exploitation, deceit, coercion, threat, manipulation. We don't see that in society today at all, do we? Watch the media. Have you seen a corruption in the last five years? The last ten years? It is becoming ever more corrupt the the way the world functions. And this view, according to this view, Satan's goal is to instill in our mind ideas about God that are so distorted we would actually have fear of him. And how can Satan do that? How can Satan get people to believe these things while, while at the same time they think they're serving God? At the very same time. By foundationally, without 
awareness without them even realizing it, believing that God's law functions like human law. Then all these justice and imperialistic things, well, it just makes perfect sense. You can't have justice. You can't have a law if you don't enforce it. And if there's no enforcement and punishment, there's no justice, and God's a God of justice, so he has to punish. And so that's why the quote we read earlier, the final battle that we're engaging now is over the law of Jehovah versus the laws of men. Here's another quote. This is out of a Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. See what you think of this one. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions. Its design principles now have all these rules, is what that means. It's, it's looking more like imperialism. And God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly present him before the fallen children of the earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was the living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way, this is an absolute statement now, an absolute, no exceptions, the only way in which he could set and keep men right, what's the theological term for setting right? Justification. Justification. What's the theological term for keeping right? Sanctification. Sanctification. The only way he could justify and sanctify, according to this author, was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. No payment. No legal accounting. It's not part of it. The truth is that sin kills, not God. God is the source of life and only and always seeks to heal and restore those who will let him. We have nothing to fear from God. We do need to fear unremedied sin. And think about, I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson because I think there's important things in Wednesday's lesson. There's other things in Tuesday we didn't go over. What is being referred to by the hour of his judgment has come? Well, let's read the first paragraph. In the first angel's message, the idea of fearing God and giving him glory is linked to judgment. In the Bible, if the Bible is clear about any teaching, it is clear that God is a God of justice and of judgment. One day, judgment... The ju- one day the judgment and justice so lacking in this world will indeed come. No wonder people need to fear God. Again, where is the emphasis here? This is the false gospel. This is why this church has failed to take the everlasting gospel. What's the final message of mercy, light in the world for Christ's return according to one of the founders of the church found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 411? The truth about God's character of love. That's the final message of mercy. To lighten the world for the second coming. This is the exact opposite of that. This is the message of darkness. This is the message that Satan wants people to believe that they have to live in fear of God. By the way, I don't say this because I'm against the Seventh-day Adventist church. If a doctor saw a patient infected with a virus and he attacked the virus with a very effective antiviral medicine, is he against the patient? Is he attacking the patient? I am not attacking the Seventh-day Adventist Church at all. I am attacking an infection of thought, a corruption of ideas, a distortion in thinking that has taken root in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and has crippled the Seventh-day Adventist Church from actually doing what it's been called to do. So be very clear about that. I am not against the Seventh-day Adventist Church at all. I love the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I love all Christians... But I hate this idea that keeps somebody trapped in fear. The lesson states, no wonder people need God. How? No wonder people need to fear God. This is, I think, a horrible idea. 
second paragraph. It says, and that's why the everlasting gospel also includes the reality of judgment. What is the relationship between these two elements? The gospel means good news. This means in turn that although we are all sinners and have broken God's law, when judgment day comes, like the thief on the cross, we will not face the penalty and punishment that we deserve for our, our sin and law breaking. Hmm. I'm going to have to jump to the last paragraph. don't have time for the middle paragraph there. It, it, it talks about why you don't have to face it, because Jesus' righteousness gets you through the judgment. That's why in the next paragraph. But listen to the last paragraph. It comes out of Testimonies of the Church, volume 5, 471. Man cannot meet, the, the, man cannot meet these charges himself, talking about the charges of Satan against us. In his sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who, by repentance and faith, have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and vanquishes their accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. His perfect obedience to God's law, even unto death of the cross, has given him all power in heaven and earth, and he claims his Father's mercy and reconciliation for guilty man. This paragraph. It's got some beautiful stuff if you rightly understand it. But if you hear it through imposed law, it really, really confuses people. And what is the imposed law? God, Jesus there pleading to the Father, His blood, and making an effectual plea so the Father won't see your sins in the record books and punish you for it. But that is not actually what's happening. He vanishes their accuser. He's pleading on behalf of us. Yes, you're exactly right. So who is it, if you read scripture widely, since the cross, Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to me, and, uh, and um, the prince of this world will be cast out. Prince of this world, where, where was he cast out of at the cross? Was he cast out of this world? No. Satan is not, no, he's, he's like a roaring lion seeking who made it out. He's still active on this world. Where was he cast out of? Parts of, Parts of, of? Of heavenly intelligences. And so when he goes in Jude to resurrect Moses, uh, the Jude, Jude records at that time the heavenly attitude towards Lucifer at the, after, after the cross. The Lord rebuke you. You see this in Zechariah recorded uh, when the uh, high priest stands there and he has these filthy garments and the accuser stands up to accuse and the words from God are, the Lord rebuke you. Okay? They're basically saying, we don't listen to you. Nobody in heaven listens to the accusations of Satan. Who's the only beings? We're the only beings who listen to those accusations. We are the ones who listen. And therefore, because we listen, who's the one who needs to be pled with? Does the Father need to be pled with in order for him to be kind and merciful and gracious to, to be influenced by the love of Jesus? No, who does need to be pled with? We need to be pled with. And so I'm going to read you as we wind up here. We needed persuasion to be saved. God didn't need persuasion to save us. I'm going to say that again. We needed persuasion to be saved. God didn't need persuasion to save us. Okay? The penal view has it just the opposite. The penal view has God's the one who needs persuading. It's a lie. This is out of, uh, from that same author. On that quote, this is a book called Lift Him Up, page 234. It says, Through the plan of salvation, Jesus is breaking Satan's hold upon the human family and rescuing souls from his power. Satan leads men into skepticism, causing them to lose confidence in God and to 
separate from his love. Notice where the action here is. Satan's attacking our thinking, getting us to lose confidence, getting us to separate from God. He tempts them to break his law, and then he claims them as his captives and contests the right of Christ to take them from him. He knows that those who seek God earnestly for pardon and grace will obtain it. Therefore, he, Satan, presents their sins before them to discourage them. He is constantly seeking occasion against those who are trying to obey God. Even at the, even their best and most accept, acceptable service, he seeks to make appear corrupt. Yeah, like all your righteous and filthy rags, you can't do anything good. Okay, He's constantly making your goodness appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. Their condemnation with whom? With themselves. I'm no good. My sin's too great. God can never love me. I'm so horrible. I see this in my practice all the time. Man cannot, man cannot meet the charges himself. In his sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who by repentance and faith have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and vanquishes their accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. Sounds very similar to the other quote. But who is he pleading to? And who, if you go on to the quote, this is who Jesus speaks to in the same quote. Here we go. To the accuser of his people, he declares, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. These are the purchase of my blood, brands plucked from the fire. Those who rely upon Christ in faith receive the comforting assurance. Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I have clothed thee with a rich raiment. So who is Jesus talking to? In this description, it's not the Father. He's shutting up the accuser and he's telling you don't fear the accuser. Don't fear that litany of things inside your head that tell you, no, I've got a remedy that will cure you. If you trust me, I will take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. I will cut away the dross. I will purify you. I will write in my law. I will restore you into my image. If you trust me, don't listen to what that guy says. He's pleading effectually, the effectual plea. It has to have the effect where? Not in God. He doesn't need to be affected. You and I are the ones that need to be affected. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask so much for your Holy Spirit to come and take the plea of Christ and, and make it real in our hearts that we can come to know and experience you more fully every day and that you will reproduce yourself in us. That write the law in our heart and mind that we will be like you and that we will be so settled into the truth. Nothing can shake us from it. And we can be empowered to take this healing message to free so many minds who are living truly in fear of you, not in awe and admiration, but they're scared and they think they need to be protected from you. What a corruption. We ask that uh, this, this final message will go forward and the world will be freed and you will come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.